of 13 years between Bonnie and Clyde in 1967 and Heaven's Gate in 1980 marked the last time it was really exciting to make movies in Hollywood. The last time people could be consistently proud of the pictures they made. The last time the community as a whole encouraged good work. The last time there was an audience that could sustain I will pay good money to hear Richard Belzer say that in the manner of a toast. His snakes are dead big. God's not dead, too. God goes Hawaiian. <laughs> Must we go tropical? Here comes the dull part. You can get up and go pee if you want. Women got some guns and just blow motherfuckers away. It taught you about death and it taught you about AIDS. Was I the only one that it taught how to fucking add and subtract? They were hate-fucking my brain. We just can't leave Brooke Shields the fuck alone, can we? <laughs> Screw you, Brooke Shields! Deal with it. To walk into any theater and the, the smell of wet panties would hit you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the show that shows up whenever the hell it feels like it. Geek Juice Radio. I am Mr. X. That is my real name. My fake name is Mike Robinson. Uh, I am joined by Cecil from Good Bad Flicks. Hey, it's long, long time. And this hobo we picked up the street named Alex Jowski. How's it going? <laughs> oh, wait, I said that wrong. I meant this guy we pulled off beating down this hobo on the street. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still fighting the homeless? <laughs> you know what? It's He actually described the difference. He said the homeless and hobos are different things. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. There are legitimate... Well, now I find them on social media, which they don't see anyway because they're <laughs> Homeless. Wait, are, are, are you sure about that? Because uh, apparently um, our, our priorities in America now is you may not have a place to live, but you better be able to check your Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're doing something a little different. It's going to be mostly about new Hollywood, but also some parallels about what we see happening on the Internet today. And I, I just thought it would be a nice um, juxtaposition. And, of course, that's one of those words where I say, thank you for that $100,000 college education. At least I get to do that once in a while since my degree is worthless. <laughs> so oh, we, that's college for you. Yeah, well, at least I went to college back when it still at least tried to teach you things other than how to think. <clears throat> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hit him right in the ovaries, Jowski. <laughs> yeah, there was a time where they taught you how to think critically. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, well, no. Yeah, we call that wrong think now, but as I and tell everybody... It's only certain colleges doing that. That is true. The one Alex says he's at, he's, he's told me he's actually pretty impressed with some of his professors putting their foots down, like, nah, nah, you keep that shit outside. Oh, <laughs> that's good to know. It's really good to hear, because you don't hear it very often. Yeah, you really don't. It's a shame. But hey, all, all of this has happened before, and it will all happen again. So we begin in like the late 60s. After the sound of music blew up, suddenly Hollywood slowly started to implode. It took 15 years, but apparently TV slowly did what movies claimed it was going to do, which is destroy them, although they were also destroying themselves. Because after the sound of music, then you got what? Dr. Doolittle, 1776... For the love of God, I still can't explain. We got paint your wagon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it literally reached the point where the studios started to admit 
we kind of don't know what we're doing. And into this, st uh, stumbled into master manipulator Warren Beatty, who had been keeping track of what was going on overseas with the Godards and the Truffauts, and saw the kind of films they were making, and they were wondering, and he was wondering, why, why, why are the French wiping up the floor with us and the Italians? D didn't we start this movie shit? So he got an idea to hook up with the guy he had just worked with, um, Arthur Penn. They had did uh, Mickey, I believe it's called Mickey One. Which, by the way, is, oh my god, it's Tumblr the movie, if you've never seen it. It is, it is mm. so precocious. <laughs> and Beatty admitted it was precocious. But it definitely stood out, and it had a, I would say it had a very French flair to it, which was kind of weird for an American film, and they decided... Let's do something a little different. Let's let's do Bonnie and Clyde. Which, by the way, uh, studios were not interested at first, even though Beatty was a rising star, until he decided he was going to produce it. And then they laughed, because stars producing their own movies? Screw that. They're, <laughs> they're, 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 they're fucking cattle, as Hitchcock called them. <laughs> you still yeah. had that for a while, though, in the 60s, stars would produce their own movies. Usually it was a vanity title, though, not actual production. You know, the same way, you know, you get that, uh... How many times do you think Walter Hill really, or Robert Zemeckis, really showed up on the set of Tales from the Crypt? Yeah, well, no, like, <laughs> Kirk, Kirk Douglas produced Spartacus. Mm. But keep in mind, usually when you saw that kind of production to the rest of Hollywood, that read, that that was translated as vanity project so yeah. that's how they saw bonnie and clyde too but of course they didn't realize what they planned on pulling with bonnie and clyde fun fact the bonnie and clyde script was apparently written by two esquire writers who just wanted to get into hollywood and somehow somewhere they got it in front of Truffaut. and he thought about doing it and then he bumped in the beady and said you know if you're trying to do something a little different try this and it worked, despite the fact that they had the, the um, the weird thing is, it got released first, and they botched the release, and it didn't do well, and Beatty, through fucking sheer willpower, got it in front of the critics, and here comes a name you're gonna hear a lot. <clears throat> then Pauline Kale got her hands on it. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, for listeners who aren't familiar, Pauline Kale is a very divisive character to us. On the one hand, she did help her and Andrew Saris did slowly elevate the concept of criticism to something that could be considered um, intellectual. However, they're the kind of people who wouldn't call it intellectual. They would just say, you plebeians just don't get it sort of thing. They kind of... It was kind of that thing we get today where you can tell a critic is telling you that they consider themselves smarter than you, Kyle Calgren. Uh, didn't... Oh, I, I don't know how that came <laughs> out of my mouth. <laughs> but she got her hands on it, did an article that was so long that the magazine she worked for wouldn't print it, so she submitted it to the New Yorker, they printed it, and that's where it became her home. So they decided to re-release it, and it went through the roof. And the studios couldn't understand this. Here's this movie with these unlikable characters, with these, who are these people? Michael J. Pollard, he looks like, he looks like a rubber-faced baby. These aren't actors. Gene Hackman, he looks like my accountant. <laughs> 
Uh, Estelle Parsons, frumpy. <laughs> and wait a minute, did our heroes just die at the end? <laughs> wait, not only did they die, did they die violently, bloodily, in ways that you had not seen on film up until that point? Yeah, they died horrendously. That, like, scarred me. I'm like, oh, that what? Yeah, that <laughs> ending, and plus that sense of dread, that feeling you get with no music, just that quiet, he grins for a second, then you see that one guy stop, drop, and roll under his car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's that quick shot of Beatty and that quick shot of Dunaway, and they both just realized, fuck, this is it. Oh, no. <laughs> and then just unload City. And in good uh, Richard Donner in, in um, the Omen fashion, even if you turn away, you, you can't turn away long enough. By the time you turn back, they're still getting shot. It's like that David mm-hmm. Warner hit. <laughs> By the way, Richard Donner did say he did that on purpose. He was like, I'm going to stretch this scene out so long that everybody to try to look away. When they look back, that head's still going to be flying in there. <laughs> <laughs> if you go back and watch it now, you'll be like, holy shit, this is like 30 seconds. <laughs> so that happened, and suddenly the studios went, oh shit, now what do we do? We don't know how to make this stuff. And apparently it got to the point where literally the inmates started taking over the asylum. They didn't know where to go. So literally they would start just asking the youngest staff members at the studios, uh, do you think this was a good idea? Do you think this is good? That's the only reason Peter Bart says he has a career is because he was the youngest guy at, at, I believe, at the time, either Fox or Universe. I think it had to be uh, Paramount, actually, because I believe he worked with Evans. And Evans will be popping up soon. You bet your ass he will. Robert Evans? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> So suddenly, out of nowhere, in the middle of like seeing like Doris Day, Rock Hudson movies, you you start getting stuff like Ashby's Herald and Maud, which flopped like a stone, by the way. So just because you know, how great movie though, great movie. Hey, how many great movies have flopped, dude? <laughs> yeah. Too this, many. I mean, to this day, you have to remind people. Oh yeah, you guys, you know the best Batman movie, Batman: The Last Phantasm. Yeah, that was a flop. Because they rushed it. It was supposed to be direct to video, and they turned it into a theatrical release at the last minute. Yeah, I had a high school teacher that showed us Harold and Maude. Wow, really? You know, today, yeah. you, today you would have to get permission for slips from the parents to show that kind of wrong thing to a class of, of impressionable students. Well, we yeah. were doing it on existentialism, so... That would it, work. <laughs> That would work. So we get like, and then you get these characters that are slowly getting into the scene. And in the background lurking around all of them is this big, fatted, bearded, crazy man named Francis Ford Coppola, who somehow creates this myth for himself, despite the fact that until The Godfather, you have to admit, his his career is not that stellar. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he was like, I think, um, Corman's youngest director at that time when he did Dementia 13. Which I believe he had to shoot overseas just just so that uh, Corman could save money. Because it's Corman. <laughs> hey, you got to cut corners where you can, you know? Hey, I have never I have never had a problem with Corman's penny-pinching neighbor, I mean, um, efforts. Except for, like, some of his 50s flicks where clearly a few more bucks could have been spent. Because, come on, uh, what's that movie? The beginning and the end where, the, where, where Peter Graves is fighting the giant grasshoppers and they're literally walking on a picture of the building. And, the and beginning, you, yeah. And, and you see the well, shadows. That, that was fairly <laughs> I mean, they did that a few times. It wasn't just Corman. That was the old yeah. 50s thing of, you know, use a postcard yeah. and put thing on postcard 
to uh, to make it appear bigger. So I don't entirely fault him for that. And uh, hey, man, I give him you know tons of credit for being like, hey, we can film out in the Philippines, and the people out here will work for like next to nothing. <laughs> Come on, who wants to be a stuntman? There were plenty of directors that did the let's film a regular size animal on a tiny set effect to worse things. Oh, yeah. I call that the Night of the mm-hmm. Leapless effect. Well, that, that <laughs> giant Gila monster guy what was his name. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was that that wasn't Bird Eye Gordon, was it? No, it wasn't Bird Eye Gordon. Uh, it's been a while. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, that was kind of like a. That was like a new special effect, more or less, at the time. I mean, now, of course, it's it just looks hilarious and it gets mystery science theater. But uh, oh, yeah. back then, uh, yeah, I don't want to say that people were dumb. Uh, people were dumb. People were dumb, and also you have to be exposed to more stuff before you realize that the stuff you saw was bad. Kind of like how TV viewers in the '80s got smacked up by shit like Hill Street Blues and Miami Vice. You you didn't know you were watching crap until you saw something better. Or the way mm-hmm. that like kids think their show right now is the best thing ever, and then they become adults and they're like, "Yeah, that that was kind of crap." Yeah, because they don't realize uh, some of these Cartoon Network shows they love now. When they get older, it's going to be the version of how we look back at Laugh Olympics and <laughs> and stuff like that, <laughs> or the way my sister looks back at Strawberry Shortcake and the Smurfs. <laughs> Oh, you shut your goddamn pie hole. Smurfs is still good. <laughs> I just well, the way some millennials are finally starting to realize that Power Rangers was shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jowski uh, gets in a lot of trouble for that one because he just shits all over that to people all the time. Not you, as much. A lot of them are starting to realize that that movie that sucked was perfectly faithful to the show because it sucked. <laughs> You yeah you say that as I'm sitting here wearing my Power Rangers t-shirt. However, and I'm not a I'm not a millennial. And also, <laughs> Cecil, you're also pretty self-aware. Oh, absolutely. If there's God, one thing I am about one of the most self-aware. Yeah, people. if there's one thing about your content that that people will pick up on immediately, which is sometimes you'll be like, "Yeah, it's crap," but you know what? It's my crap. So fuck you. <laughs> exactly. You know what? Everybody likes like a little bit of crap. I mean, I the thing that I try to point out to people is it's like, all right, you know what? I recognize like the the distinct difference between something that is Oscar worthy and something that is just, you know what? Here's a bunch of shit blowing up and it's fun. <laughs> you have to remember you're talking to the site that still holds up Hudson Hawk as one of the most misunderstood movies ever made. <laughs> I, you know it's even bruce willis hates hudson hawk which is hilarious because we love it um we get it but i guess you just have to be on that if you don't get the wavelength of a movie like that which is going to come into factor to some of these 70s flicks then you're just not going to get it mm-hmm. to me it, to me it was clearly he wanted to make a cartoon with people in it <laughs> and that's hudson hawk it you know and i really think that at the time like he was all in and then once like people just didn't get it was when he turned against it. Yeah. And and also Bruce Willis like I don't I don't know what happened but man has he quickly became a grumpy old man. Oh my god. I, I know you must have saw some of those press junkets for Die Hard 5. Oh yeah. Oh, they're Although they they're were the ultimate in cringe. <laughs> Where he just well, kind of like looks of- like heard plenty of directors corroborate what kevin smith had to say about working with bruce willis yeah they say they say he's not gonna be your pal 
<laughs> no, no, no. He, 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 he's got his own agenda. In a, in a weird way, he's kind of become the macho version of, of some of the Brando stories I'll be telling slowly <laughs> as we proceed. So you start getting flicks like Harold Mudd. Uh, Ashby then followed that up with uh, Town. I believe it was Town's first script, The Last Detail. The one with uh, also... Nicholson and, and believe it or not, I know people forget this because he's a fucking loon now, and Randy Quaid. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's kind of a bit yeah, off the deep end. Skipping over one of the biggest late 60s New Hollywood films, which was The Graduate. Yeah, but you know, to me, I know it was so seismic, but to me it feels like one of the more pedestrian uh, when, when you look back at it now. Well, you're just not white enough to get it. And I get that. <laughs> and I get that. I totally get that. Because I, I found out, apparently, uh, Henry's script, they were all supposed to be wasps. It was Nichols who said, you know what? This doesn't work with wasps. They have to be Jews. And he was right. Oh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> wait, you thought, wait, you actually thought it was going to be like, <laughs> what are you doing in the pool? That's <laughs> 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 an awesome idea as a graduate. It's all giant wasps. And, uh, oh, God. Now I'm trying to think of how we can we can merge that together with the asylum. You know, <laughs> <laughs> It's a seducing movie about a wasp and a human. You know? about to say, I might have, Hoffman's uh, a human and there's a wasp queen. Is, yeah. I, I, might have to send, I might have to send this to uh, Ryan Michelle and say, hey, if you guys make this, just say uh, story credit by. <laughs> uh, yeah, The Graduate and Nichols. Again, I mean, this was a film that the studios just kind of scratched their heads and went, um, okay, I guess it didn't cost that much. We can release it. And boom! And more importantly, that opened the door for what they referred to as, and it's so funny having to refer to them this way now, ethnic actors to become leads. Because up until then, you really didn't have too many Dustin Hoffmans. And he opened the door, obviously, for the Pacinos and people like that. These were not the faces you normally saw on film. Well, it was also, they started around that time to attempt to tell stories more about ethnics. Um, <laughs> but they they were really sloppy. Like, they used Dustin Hoffman, his, an Indian, and that little big man or whatever, and... But wasn't the whole point was he was a white, wasn't he a white guy that was converted by the Indians? Wasn't that the point of that movie? Oh, yeah, it was. It was, the, the Indians couldn't survive without the white man to tell them what to do. See, I think the one where the white guy plays the Indian, isn't that Richard Harris? And, um, all I remember is Dick Smith having to hold him up by his nipples. A man called Horse? Man called Horse, yes, that's what it is. Yeah. So you got Nichols, you got these little collectives starting. Meanwhile, in the background... Poor Jack Nicholson is starting to think, man, I'm probably never going to get to be a star. But at least Roger's letting me write scripts and produce stuff. Um, Bob Rafelson one day said, you know what, let's rip off uh, the Beatles movies. And they created the Monkees, and that gave them a chunk load of change. So he hooked up with Burt Schneider, and they created the infamous BBS and they decided they were going to let the filmmakers speak for themselves and interfere as little as possible. And apparently they hated life because the next thing they decided to do was to agree to shoot Peter Fonda's movie, The Loners, which eventually became Easy Rider, 
And they said yes to Dennis Hopper directing. <laughs> this is Dennis Hopper we're talking about it. And this is not Frank Booth Dennis Hopper, which is already pretty scary. This was unfiltered, pure hippie, had just been at the Love Ends and discovered LSD and weed on top of the fact that he had been drinking since the age of 13, Dennis Hopper. And the behind-the-scenes story of that movie is just... it. That's a whole show by itself, but... Let's just say shit didn't... Shit looked like it was gonna fuck up. Peter Fonda started to hate him because he was producing it, and it was his story idea, and slowly over the course of the production... Dennis not only said was it his idea, he also claims that Terry Southern never wrote a word, which I find a little hard to believe. This is the guy that wrote Dr. Strangelove. I, I don't think he would not put his touch on a script like that. But then that oh, one, yeah. then they sell that. Well, we one. had. Oh, what? I was just going to say, we got, uh, and then you got Dennis Hopper eventually completely losing his mind uh, going off for um, Mad Dog Morgan. Where at one point they thought he was dead. <laughs> that was a an a, a, a exploitation movie where they just kind of gave him free reign, and he did like he just did mountains of drugs. <laughs> they were it, they talked about it in uh, there was a exploitation. Uh, oh, I know um, what you went about that Oz. Uh, it came from Oz or something like it came, that. It came. It came. It uh, came. Was it? It came from not ho- not from yeah not, not from exactly Hollywood. Hollywood yeah I know that one that's a good one oh it was hilarious like they just showed Dennis Hopper just uh, eyes just completely dilated <laughs> just out of his mind <laughs> and apparently uh, they somehow sold it to Columbia who had very little hope for it but they were lucky enough to have somebody in the art department who seemed to get it. So he came up with the tagline of the story of two men who went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. And it's just a picture of uh, Peter Fonda looking off into like the distance. And then they took it to Cannes. And, uh uh-oh, it wins. Columbia goes, well, you know, what the hell? We'll release it. At the time, I believe it Beat Night of the Living Dead as the most um, lucrative independent film ever made. And the studios went, you know what? We don't get this hippie shit. We don't get this free love shit. But you know what? If you can make us money, we'll we'll just give you a million bucks. Just go make your movie. <laughs> One thing that helped lead into that, though, was the disappearance of the Hayes Code. Oh, Absolutely. And so a lot of – and the rise of independent cinemas, you know, and their viability. The fact that um, studios did not own the theaters anymore. Yeah, breaking up that monopoly helped quite a bit because, man, you look at that now. Don't you just go, how could the world not accept how crooked this is? And there, there were some <laughs> growing pains with it because up until Night of the Living Dead, horror and sci-fi was your matinee kid genre. Mm-hmm. And – um. That's what a lot of theater owners thought it was, and it was like Ebert's review was like, I went to this afternoon screening of Night of the Living Dead. Oh, and God, these- I remember that, and he was horrified. There were children crying in the aisles! Oh, <laughs> because they'd never Ebert. seen anything like that before. Which cracks me up, because he slammed Night, and then he well, became no, he one didn't. of... He wrote two reviews of Night. He, okay, he well, wrote I- that one, where he was talking about the significance of the disappearance of the Hayes Code. Hmm. 
you know, and that this was a real horror movie, unlike everything we've had before. But then he also wrote just a standard, hey, this is a great movie. Okay, I thought to say, because he was, I must have missed the second one, because I distinctly remember he was one of Don's biggest champions. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So his review for Night, where he was talking about the audience, it wasn't even a negative thing about the movie. It was positive. Look how badly this movie fucks these kids up. Horror movies haven't done this for years. I was about to say, and it still has that power, because the first time I ever saw Night of the Living Dead was on Chiller Theater on my local ABC channel at 1 o'clock in the morning, and my parents weren't there, and that movie fucked me up. But they could do more violence and sex in movies... And the studios were like, well, we can't compete with these independents that are giving them the stuff they actually want, so we might as well pick up those directors. Yep, and it's funny because eventually, near the beginning of the 80s, Roger Corman will have something to say about that, that really, that uh, basically says, uh, yeah, y'all fucked it up for me. (laughs) And he, he, he had major directors that were... You know Hollywood studio directors that are like, oh, now I can experiment. Okay, let's yeah, do this. You got, yeah, yeah, hell, then uh, you got <laughs> Schlesinger doing Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, you had Kubrick becoming the Kubrick we know. Yeah, he, that shit. People forget what a fucking shitstorm Clockwork Orange was. When oh God, yeah. <laughs> it was X-rated. It was X-rated, <laughs> and it had some copycats over overseas. So Kubrick literally had it pulled from release until his death. In the UK, if I recall. It only mm-hmm. recently came out after he died. And then, of course, being jaded young people of today, they went, eh, what's all the fuss about? Kind of like when they re-released The Exorcist, uh, that special edition back in, I think, what was it, 2000, 2001. So many people were like, eh, it ain't that scary. I'm like, it's from 1974! Yeah. <laughs> On top of that, could um, be more anti-American with film. Yeah, the whole concept of oh, the system that, that is That was broken. Easy Rider. <laughs> and and more importantly, you weren't hearing that in film. It was uh, the same way a lot of people refer to uh, MST3K. You can apply it to 70s cinema at this point, which is you started to get this sense of truth-telling. And, mm-hmm. and there's also that same kind of underlying thing that happened at the beginning of Saturday Night Live, too. They were in on the joke with the audience saying, we know this is what you think. You just never, ever usually see it in movies. We're actually going to say it out loud. And, uh, wow, I think it ties in pretty well. It, isn't your Joe in this period, too? The movie we're riffing next week? Yeah, oh, Joe. The, the, um, the, the, oh, God, was uh, Peter Boyle. Peter, Peter Boyle, Peter Boyle, yes. thank you. Yeah, we're oh, God. that one next week. That's What's interesting wow, about is that. Wow, it's kind of Yeah, it is. How are you going to riff that movie? <laughs> like, that's, that's pretty, like, serious. Oh, well, we we talk everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, because Avildsen, like before that, he did. Guess what I learned in school today, which was a commentary about schools starting to teach sex ed and all the you know controversy there. Oh yeah. And um, like he was, and then he did Joe. I'm like, these are politically, you know, films that are discussing political and social issues. And then he goes and does sports movies for the rest. <laughs> I know. Of the- I know. Then, then he ends up. <laughs> then of course he reaches his high point with a night in heaven. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> but uh, so they keep doing this, and the studios basically are just throwing their hands up, like, "Hey, if it if it can make us some money, just 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 go ahead." And Corman, still being Corman, um, he's like, "Well, you know what? 
I'm gonna, I'm still gonna let these guys have a shot, you know, as long as they can make sure that you can throw some tits in there for me so I can market the movie. Yeah, well, Corman went the way of like the Italians. It's like, oh, well, we're gonna go farther than those guys are. Yeah, he picks up Scorsese to do Boxcar Bertha. Uh, later on, Demi to do Caged Heat. Um, meanwhile, thanks to Easy Rider. Yeah, Coppola for Dementia 13. Oh, yeah. Um, funnily enough, all his, uh, you know the character that, uh, Jack Nicholson plays in Easy Rider was supposed to be Rip Torn. But I could go into the, the knife and the possibility of violence and all that stuff, but all I'll just say is Dennis Hopper's. <laughs> <laughs> After meeting Dennis Hopper, 20 minutes later, Torn knew he wasn't doing this movie. <laughs> I mean, the the big breakthrough for Nicholson, though, after Easy Rider was another new Hollywood film, Five Easy Pieces. Five Easy Pieces and Detail, I think, weren't those like literally like a year apart? Yeah. Because Last Detail really kind of put them on the map, despite the fact that they botched that release, too. They released it early. Then they thought they would bring it back out after Oscar nominations, but by then it had cooled and it just didn't make that much money. He did no, five easy pieces was seventy. Last detail was seventy three. Oh, okay. So he'd already won his Oscar for five easy pieces before he did last detail. He got one for five easy. I thought he was. I honestly thought his first Oscar was a uh, Terms of Endearment. No, he was nominated for five easy. Oh, okay, gotcha. So we got that one, and that was that was Rafelson, right? Yeah, Rafelson. Yeah. So once again, coming from BBS, and of course, after they did Easy Rider, BBS just started to take off, and uh, as we slowly start showing the similarities to what's going on with new media, so basically you have all these people with these limited resources who see this platform that's suddenly available to them, and they start using this platform in a more anarchistic speaking to the audience way than the bigger people know how to do how many people do you know that are more likely to go watch a video of an ign review of a game versus say an angry joe yeah so you have these people starting to slip in and although I picked him intentionally because we will be talking about the crumbling later. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if you look at just film production, um, you have the studios completely playing it safe with the comic book movies. Mm-hmm. And they're just the completely safe bets. But then you have like Netflix, which is taking a huge risk with the films and TV oh, shows yeah. they invest in. And of course, creating a lot of uh, tension and concern because. <laughs> Now they're debating whether or not Netflix films can be considered up for competitions like Khan and stuff like that. Well, they said the same thing about should independent films be eligible for Oscars? Oh, I mean, we all know what this is. The establishment will try to stop you if they feel like you might one day supplant them. (laughs) Remember all the TV is evil. Go to the movies. Cable TV is evil. Watch the networks. And the, Mm -hmm. the... Netflix film that's generating all that con- controversy is um, Okja. Was that the one with um... Tilda Swinton and the Giant Pig? Mm-hmm. Beautiful movie. No studio would ever have funded that. It's such an odd concept. Yeah. 
it, and it, it's, and it, they're they're doing it the seventies way. They're they're and they're they're niche capitalism too. That studios don't like any critique of capitalism these days. Well, yeah, because you know. <laughs> It's kind of their business. <laughs> At the end of the day, what 70s Hollywood unfortunately taught the business in general was there's money in this. And that's they're what, going in. Sorry. Oh, no. And all I was going to say is and that's what ultimately destroyed it. Well, that's the thing. They they don't understand. They keep going after uh, trying to shut down things like Netflix from being able to get awards. And really, that just kind of is making the general public pay a little bit more attention to them. Not so much on a Streisand effect level, but it's just, uh, you know, the what are you afraid of? Yeah. You know, you, you know, they did that uh, way back too when HBO started getting uh, things that were getting recognized. Hey, they got all this quality stuff. It's getting recognized for uh, awards. We need to knock that off because cable TV, that's not movies and, and NBC and ABC. Yeah, exactly. You know? And uh, so yeah, now it's just it's the next level. Now it's Netflix. And I mean, hell, I'm when... sure... I'm sure it'll phase into uh, to YouTube at some point once oh, somebody yeah. can figure out how to make like a uh, a a. a sh- I mean, I you know now there are shows uh, on there that are getting nominated for Golden Globes and whatnot. Yeah, uh, maybe they got to. Yeah, pick a um, maybe they need to pick a better color though, because apparently YouTube Red is not quite living up <laughs> to it. Well, Netflix I, I don't know anybody. Who, I don't know anybody who pays for it. Netflix shows have won plenty of Emmys and Golden Globes and stuff, which is, you know, to its benefit, it's motivated traditional like cable television to make better shit. Yeah, basically Mm -hmm. what the reason that the mainstream will attack stuff like the 70s independent flicks or today with Netflix and stuff is deep down inside, they know they can't compete with risk takers because that's not their business model. They do not believe in risk if it's possible. Well, it's hilarious that they like, they won't take a risk. They won't put out um, like Paramount recently did the thing um, uh, back. uh, I'd say about five years ago, they cut, any movie under a hundred million dollars. They said, we are no longer taking the chance on these movies. We're only doing blockbusters. And to me, that's the most idiotic thing because (laughs) let's like, if you do like a five or $10 million film, uh, you have a much higher chance of recouping your money and also the higher chance of making the next paranormal activity or the next Blair Witch Project or the next small movie that just makes a ton of money. That but was... if you do like a, a, you know, a $150 million Star Trek movie and it fails miserably, then you are out uh, you know, however yeah. many, you know, tons of money that you uh, just dumped into this thing. And it's funny to me that like the smaller films are what can are what are being considered the risk. It, it is backwards thinking and it, and it ties totally back into the 70s, which is where a place like BBS would say, well, if we were a big studio, we would put all our money into because back then 15 million was like a gigantic budget. Instead, we can make five, three million dollar movies. We have five more chances at bat. Mm-hmm. That's but, why Blumhouse is doing so great. Yeah, I they're mean, they're taking they three and down. five million, yeah, three to five million dollar movies and freaking uh, split 
was huge. Uh, Get Out was huge. I mean, they're just really pulling in. You know, they're 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 doing fantastic and, and good for them. And it sounds like they saw your video, so they're not quite uh, ending every movie with a jump scare. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to take credit for that, but I'm going to take credit for that. But even if you know the Bloomhouse films, a lot of them are just generic cliche horror. They make money. Yeah, because. That's what a lot of people like, and they're like, well, let's just give them what they like. Let's just give them their 15 knockoffs of Conjuring, and we'll make all the money. <laughs> well, uh, the thing is, they, they're making money with uh, those, you know, with the Annabelle, uh, or not the, like, the, 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 the Purge movies and all that. But, um, like, with the... Um, the movies that are, are really you know getting the most attention are the unique ones, are the different ones, you know, the sinister and uh, or not the sinister, but sinister <laughs> and uh, and uh, get out and split the movies where they because they learned their lesson with Jem. They were like, let's try to make the you know, this pile of crap. And even still, that was only five million dollars, but it was a big failure. But they still recouped their money on it. But it was like, OK, wait a minute. We need to take the right kind of risks and either give people like the occasional paranormal activity, you know, umpteenth million sequel where uh, it is what people are expecting. Or we take a little bit of a risk, give people something that uh, maybe they haven't seen before. And that's been doing fantastic for them. Uh, the Visit was another one that was uh, huh. uh, a little bit different and was a big hit. Yeah. And, Get out. And it's Get totally out. that probably one of the most original horror films I'd seen in a while. Yeah, Get Out and it also made a ton of money and it got all kind of, it got critical acclaim. I mean, people are talking, I mean, I personally don't think it's the best movie of the year, but I think that it's very good and uh it's it's good for them, you know? The whole thing with Get Out, you know, I watched the first 15 minutes, I was like, did someone make a horror movie inspired by Trayvon Martin? <laughs> now that's a risk. <laughs> And it's funny you guys should mention that particular film. Hmm. Small, low-budget, kind of idiosyncratic horror film that gets cultural and critical cachet. So there was this flick called Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which introduced us to, as we like to refer to him over Kate Juice, Polanski of Rome. Yes. I mean, yeah, he had Dead Repulsion, but that clearly was that was over, that was a foreign film, wasn't it? That was not made for the studios. It was an independent, but it wasn't foreign. It had a lot of it had that French lady in it, but it wasn't a French <laughs> did you, film. Did you just refer to my Catherine Deneuve as that French lady? Yes, I can remember <laughs> that French lady. <laughs> well, he's not wrong. No, he's not, and that. Just like today, that made a mark and allowed him to start doing other things, which, as the people like Town and them started blowing up and Robert Evans started blowing up, led to Chinatown. Forget it, Jake. Yeah, I still tell that to Jowski all the time whenever he starts arguing with somebody too much online. I just leave leave the line in, in the middle of the thread. It just goes, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. (laughs) <laughs> or you just get you just link an image. <laughs> and also, I love the fact that now that we know about Polanski, doesn't it make so much more sense that he's the guy that chops Jake Giddis's nose? 
<laughs> well, the thing with Robert Evans, have you ever read or at least seen... Oh, seeing Kid that Stays in the Picture. Kid Stays in the Picture? Yeah. Which, it's... Mm-hmm. Patton Oswald is right. It sounds like Robert Evans' drunk ramblings. <laughs> but there is sense. He's telling a story about... Hollywood was crap, and I came along and said, hey, let's take these risks. Which is funny, because he could take some of the credit for it, but honestly, he lucked into that job by mistake. Apparently, Charlie Bluthorn's wife said, he's so beautiful. You need someone like that running your studio. That has nothing to do with the ability to pick movies. (laughs) That has nothing to do with the ability to approve budgets. (laughs) I mean, yeah, like... Some of the ones he produced that are, are timeless now, like Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, Godfather, those all came from Robert Evans. Yeah. But he also gave us Love Story, which was crap, but made a ton of money. With the most nonsensical tagline in the history of taglines. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Yeah. And I think he only produced that movie because he was trying to get into Allie's pants, which he did. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad he didn't visit the set of the getaway because McQueen said, "Yeah, I'm better than Robert Evans. Why don't you come with me, baby?" <laughs> <laughs> he actually does blame. Um, I think it was production of either Chinatown or The Godfather on destroying his marriage, which I think is you know projection. But what you gonna do? Uh, so you got that one, um, and then of course we have to get to the apex, which is the apex of art and um commerce of this period which would be the godfather the film coppola didn't want to make the studio didn't want to make nobody wanted to make but mario Puzo didn't want to make yeah he literally (laughs) sold the treatment to pay off a gambling debt um but it stayed on the charts so fucking long eventually universal came over to paramount and said hey uh, well if you ain't gonna do nothing if you ain't if you ain't gonna finish that burger uh, we'll give you a million bucks for it. And Paramount went, well, shit, I guess we gotta make the movie. And the first thing, which is funny because this sounds more like today's Hollywood than back then. The first thing they go is, well, we gotta get an Italian to direct this or they're gonna just rake us over the coals. <laughs> and that is how you end up with Coppola. Coppola was literally the only known Italian director at the time, <laughs> the working in Hollywood. It wasn't like they were going to fly over a Bertolucci or something. Yeah, this was after Conversation, right? No, Conversation can, uh, Conversation actually came out roughly about the same time as Godfather 2 because he both got nominated <laughs> for Best Picture. <laughs> Coppola didn't want to do it, and he ultimately regrets doing it because he says, I was on this certain path, and he claims the same thing about George Lucas, too. We were both on this certain path to make these personal artistic films, and then one Hollywood feature set us on a different path, which is ironic, because if you look at the career of Coppola, the two Godfather films are clearly his most personal films. Hands down. Easy. You guys still there? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Just yeah, want to make absolutely. sure. I, I saw my uh, Skype doing a weird thing. I didn't know if y'all was there. Because he had no choice. He had to make the projects his own. And this will come back later when we talk about Raging Bull, the movie the Scorsese didn't want to make. Um, and he brought so much to them, despite the fact that the studio hated the dailies. He eventually banned Evans from the set. <laughs> um, 
Gordon Willis ran roughshod over Coppola. He said, fuck you, I'm shooting it this way. Coppola can take no credit for the visuals of The Godfather. That is all Gordon Willis. The, the concept of the dark, muted tones, the fact that everything is overhead lit at the beginning so you can't really see Brando's eyes. That shit was mm-hmm. all Gordon Willis. It was collaboration at gunpoint. The, the shadow in the office versus the bright garishness of the wedding. Mm-hmm. The juxtapositions and all the great camera angles you remember. Coppola admits he had to worry about rewriting the script because he hates the book. And, and if anyone's ever zipped through the original Godfather book, you're like, there's no way that movie came from this. It's a pulp. Yeah, there is this it's... entire subplot in the book that's like a good quarter of the book, which is all about a woman that needs to make her, her vagina tighter. Yeah, and that's why she likes Sonny, <laughs> because Sonny's got the gigantic dick, which apparently they go into incredible detail in the book. Yeah, and then she goes to, like, Vegas, and she meets Johnny Fontaine, who who does not have that, and he's like, well, I'm going to meet you with this plastic surgeon who will <laughs> tighten you up, and she's happy, and it goes on forever, and has nothing to do with anything. You know how they deal with that in the movie? There's that one shot at the wedding. Where Sonny's wife is talking to her girlfriend, so she has her hands kind of apart, and then she puts them more apart, and then she puts them more apart, and all the girls go, ooh, that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how they conveyed that information. Tw- 28 pages of, di- of book <laughs> compressed into one scene. Also, uh, oh man, did the studio not want Pacino. When they were watching the dailies, Evans was literally saying, is this guy going to do anything? Because he only was <laughs> seeing the footage from the beginning up until McCluskey's execution. So you realize, up until that point in the movie, yeah, Michael doesn't really do anything. Well, so that was a- also back in the time when we had we had Dish Pacino, and he only talked a little bit. You know, he <laughs> kind of just talked very low, and, 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 you know, we didn't get the, yeah, Pacino yet. I, I know you've you know? seen I know you've seen it. I don't know if you've seen it, Alex, but if you guys have ever caught the riff tracks of Willy Wonka, before he goes... <laughs> Nothing. No. You get nothing. Mike Nelson says, I think one night on cable TV, Al Pacino saw this and decided to base the rest of his career on Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people forget. I mean, we just recently, and remember when you you were wondering how we're going to riff Joe? Well, we riffed Cruising recently. <laughs> well, Cruising has, like, I mean, at least there's a there's a fair amount of stuff that you can goof on that. I don't know. Like, it, it's still, like, Cruising is, is serious, but it's also somewhat absurd. Oh, uh, incredible. I guess Joe is also a little bit, but uh, it's hard to know. believe. It's kind of hard to believe the same guy that directed the boys in the band directed Cruising when you look at it. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Was uh, was cruising? Now I'm thinking too. I might be mixing this up. Was was cruising the one too with the um, the interrogation scene with the yeah, big black guy at the jackstrap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay, guess that, what? Guess what? I found out. Freakin says that was based on real life. <laughs> he said that used to be a distractionary tactic that the NYPD would do just to throw you off so much that you you couldn't keep your lies together. And think about it, it would probably work. It absolutely. Would. How how do you even like comprehend what just happened? <laughs> By the way, that's my little message. Anytime I need Brad, I told I I just send that gif in his messages. <laughs> <laughs> just walking in, slap, walks out, and then, and then that wonderful shot of him just calmly walking out with his ass just hanging out. <laughs> 
wonderful. It's just one of the greatest things I've ever seen. So because it's so like, huh? Like, and then it's it's just never mentioned. It just it just happened. Mm. Like, so meanwhile, while Godfather's going on, Corman's still doing his thing. He goes, hmm. I got to compete with these new modern flicks, which are like my flicks, but just a more extreme. So I need to make an extreme movie. Uh, I got this footage from the terror laying around, and I've and and Boris Koloff owes me two days. And goddamn it, I'm Roger Corman. I'm I'm collecting on those two days. I paid for them. So hey, <laughs> uh, uh, what's your name, Bogdanovich? Make a movie using these elements, and then you end up with some crazy fucking shit like Targets, a movie yep. that clearly could not get made today. No, <laughs> there are a lot of them. And it's always sad when it's like, this could never... And it's usually like a theme that it's like, oh, that makes sense, that really works. But then it's like, yeah, there's there's no studio that would greenlight this today. Yeah, and so many of these movies are like that. Hell, I don't think you could get The Exorcist greenlit today. No, not the way that it was made. Yeah. Because like it, it would be too slow. They'd have to put in more more jumps. They'd have to you, put in... You don't want to know uh, what modern Hollywood would do with the crucifix scene. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine Dog Day Afternoon has is coming out today? What would happen with social media? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, they would just lose their mind. Despite so the they'd f- call call des- for somebody to get fired. Despite the fact that the guy that wants to transition is clearly the most sympathetic character in the movie. And he mm-hmm. and he well, you would have you and would he have hates the fact that Pacino's doing this for him. Well, you would have both sides. You would have the, the SJW. So well, that's not an authentic trans representation. And then you'd have the, the other side. They're trying to brainwash us with the trans movie. Well, you know, we always say <laughs> only cis speaking ass to lose. Yeah. I, again, I still say the only positive contribution from all three films put together. <laughs> that one little line. <laughs> it, it, it's a great way to get your point across. <laughs> So you got that going on. You got these. Lume is starting to say, you know what? I can start doing slightly crazier stuff. And of course, that leads to network. A flick that no way on earth could you make today. Although they did do it on TV for a little while. It was called Max Headroom. Well, of course. Hell yeah. (laughs) You also have um, that young Jew fellow that made the shark movie. Well, first you got to remember as the guy that made the truck movie. The yeah, tr- yes. the, tr- the truck TV movie, which I yeah, love the, the chasing fr- truck movie. You know? And I love the fact that Spielberg, at the end of the day, is still that guy. He he says that for about 10 years, once a year, he would rewatch Duel to remind himself what he can do with nothing. Because can you imagine what that was on the page? Yeah. Guy gets chased by truck. <laughs> it's 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 just one line. <laughs> and here's the weird thing: just like today's media, as this is going on, all these people are hanging out and collaborating with each other. Um, apparently, Margot Kidder and Jennifer Salt had this place on the beach in California, and eventually, Julia and Michael Phillips moved in next door. Um, every weekend, there'd be a party. Mulus. Spielberg, Scorsese, Schrader, who hadn't made a name for himself yet, and everybody says was a complete manipulative star fucker, connecting himself to anybody of importance. And Marty wasn't important then, so he ignored him. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
De Palma was there because at the time I think De Palma was actually dating Kidder. Well, as much as you could date Margot Kidder back then, she admits she was a '70s woman. If you get my drift. Oh dear. Basically, fucked anyone that came in <laughs> through the door, except Schrader, and that really pissed him off. <laughs> Pro- probably didn't uh, didn't trim or shave. No, very '70s. Apparently, they uh, would just in the middle of a party just take their tops off and go outside and sunbathe. And you got people like Spielberg who probably ain't even seen no panties yet, just sitting there like, <laughs> and all these people are interacting with her. And, and, and also, keep in mind that there are very wildly different people here. You got all these hippie type folks, and then you got crazy ass white right wing John Mulis out there shooting his shotgun off the damn deck <laughs> deck in the back, and then saying, "Okay, I'm gonna go surf." <laughs> There's a reason why Charlie don't surf is an apocalypse now. That's all Mulis right there. <laughs> and they're collaborating. It's like they're starting, like they're giving each other ideas, hints. They're letting each other see their rough cuts, which of course becomes really funny when you hear about the Star Wars rough cut. Mm-hmm. Um, Lucas didn't hang, but apparently, I guess Lucas had won a um, some sort of deal while he was at USC to monitor a film being made, and it was some big bloated western, and he got bored. So he started wandering around this, the lot and found Coppola shooting Finian's Rainbow. And I guess he stalked him for a few days because eventually Coppola went, Hey, why do you keep watching us? And before you know it, he made him an assistant. What's interesting about um, Lucas, though, is before Star Wars, he already made a name for himself, not with THX, but with um, American Graffiti. Yeah, and yeah. also he barely got graffiti because, unfortunately, THX is the example I was going to show up getting too big for your britches. Yeah. Because THX, it had won, I think, a student award. I don't know if it was the student Oscar, but it won some sort of student award, and it blew people away. But when he made it a full-length film, <laughs> apparently Coppola was supposed to protect him, but Coppola was busy, wasn't really paying attention... Basically didn't see the final cut until they showed it to the executives, and the executives were like, what the fuck is this? And apparently Coppola's response was, I don't know what the fuck this is. <laughs> and they took a loss, and the Zoetrope's deal with the studio was ripped up, and not only that, they were like, we gave you 300 bucks uh, startup money, we want that back. And that becomes a point of contention, because guess what they asked for after The Godfather blew up? <laughs> the Godfather 2? No, Warner Brothers said, uh, yo, you still owe us 30 grand, 300 grand. And and now you're dealing with cocky Coppola. There's a reason why you've never seen the words Warner Brothers and Coppola together, ever. <laughs> <laughs> that motherfucker said he took a Sicilian grudge. <laughs> like, to the point where he won't shake a, a Warner's executive's hand. Wow. Type, type shit. Oh, and the fun part, uh, when he did win his Oscars for Godfather, thanked everybody on The Sun, even remembered to thank Robert Town, who only wrote one scene, but when I tell you what scene it is, you'll get it. It's the scene where basically Brando gives the power of the family to Pacino, and they're both sitting there, I I wanted you to be the one to pull the strings. It gave us the fucking imagery (laughs) of Mm -hmm. the damn book. We'll get there one day, Pop. We'll get there. <laughs> he thanks all of them, except for Robert Evans. 
And apparently afterward, at the at the after party, he was like, "Oh, Bob, I totally forgot to say your name." And then when they do the deal for Godfather Two, he says, "I'll do it if Evans has absolutely nothing to do with the movie." Wow. Um, although one of the things that eventually killed New Hollywood was the over budget and time it took. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, the same thing that we're seeing now online with people getting too big for their britches and starting to branch outside of their comfort zones. Like, say, I don't know, incorporating material into your content that your fans have clearly said they don't want, and it's costing you extra money, but by gum, you're going to do it anyway? <laughs> I have a feeling that the Justice League movie is the next Heaven's Gate, because it was getting already bloated and problematic before Zack Snyder stepped away from it, and now you've got Josh Whedon that's coming in and changing it again completely. And let's be honest, Mr. Whedon-style... <laughs> is diametrically opposed to the Zack Snyder style. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, when he came... You know what? If this was, uh, say, 2012, I would have been very happy that he was being brought on board. Yeah. Now, I just... All I know is it's just going to be... Uh, you know, we're going to get a lot more Wonder Woman time. Probably a lot more Wonder Woman's feet time. Uh <laughs> And just like things. Oh, so that, you noticed uh, those shots of uh, Black Widow when she was uh, with the Russians too, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, somebody that somebody is, likes Tootsies. That you know? Whedon's lost his goddamn mind over the past, you know, year and a half. Yeah, well, you well, know. yeah. His own people turned against him, and oh my god, you know, I've been I've been pandering to, to you people for years, yeah. and now you all hate me. How? What happened? And we all know that that's what happens in those situations anyway when you deal with extremists. Sooner or later, you're going to find out that you're not extreme enough. Yeah, so he I don't tries. know. Like I, he, he gets, like, like Whedon tweeting on Mother's Day about the, like, I'm glad my mother died and never lived to see Trump. Happy Mother's Day. And people are like, dude, what the fuck? Yeah, like, <laughs> there's people that are like, man, they're like, I hate the guy, but... Like, come on! Like, really? <laughs> yeah. Also, I, I, I do hope these people realize if, if if the person they keep talking about is so vindictive and, and crazy as they claim he is, don't you think he's probably got some staff members keeping an eye on what people are saying about him in a public forum, maybe for future future use? <laughs> I, I just wouldn't. I just wouldn't put myself in that situation. <laughs> there was some controversy mm. that he had where, like, some kids with cancer thing is raising money and it's showing all these women that have cancer and he tweets about these unfuckable looking women. Wow. Yeah. Or like, dude, no. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then he's like, I'm leaving Twitter because of trolls. No, you're leaving Twitter because you don't like you, you've lost your mind. You've yeah. lost the plot. You can't like now you, you hate someone so much blindly that you can't differentiate between a genuine insult and just spurging. Yeah. And yeah. of course and of course this whole sub level that just so many people online don't understand, which we know very well, which is known as shit posting. Mm -hmm. When you're just when you're not even trolling, you're just fucking with somebody because they've made it too goddamn easy for you not to. <laughs> when you wear your fucking soul on your sleeve like that, you're gonna attract the bullies. It's gonna happen. Yeah. Of New Hollywood, the directors that survived were the ones that were able to do that, that were able to make a movie quick and under budget. 
Yeah, because the, yeah, the budget thing is about to be the thing. Um, Starting with THX, the quoted budget versus the budget you ended up with started to change, and the studios were too scared to interfere to comment on it, and they would let these things snowball to the point of where it became a problem. Uh, Exorcist, way over budget. Um, THX, way over budget. Godfather went over budget. Um, shit, obviously leading towards, I think the pinnacle of this would be, there's two films, Freak and Sorcerer, and of course, <laughs> the mother of them all, <laughs> Heaven's Gate. Yeah. And, um, and Heaven's Gate was the nail. That, that was the one that killed it. It, it, I mean, hell, it killed the studio and it made all these guys go, you know what? Times change, and the kind of films that these artists were attracting people to in the mid-70s, that's no longer our audience. And we know it's not just these two films' fault, but they're a big factor of it, and that would be Jaws and Star Wars. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Because one, Star Wars and Jaws, just like what happened to the music industry after Frampton Comes Alive made regular business start paying attention and say, this is the kind of money you can make doing this? And we end up with the filmmaking we have today, which is clearly, uh, well, we'll let CAA put the package together and uh, we'll make sure we get pre-merchandising rights through all these companies. Uh, we'll say something positive about the military so we can utilize their vehicles you know, at a cost. And uh, we'll make sure to add additional sequences for the Chinese market. Oh, and uh, sooner or later we'll work on that script. Um, but no, another director that could shoot quickly and under budget from New Hollywood was Eastwood. Oh, yeah. And people, because of his right-wing winglings, he got a bad rap for a lot of his 70s stuff. Despite the fact that most people don't realize... The guy that directed Dirty Harry was a dyed-in-the-wool liberal that was literally using the movie to shitpost. Yeah, um, he well, literally also... said he wanted to piss off his friends with that movie. <laughs> how, how revolutionary stylistically and story-wise some of Eastwood's 70s stuff was, like High Plains Drifter? Yeah. When we did that one for, mm -hmm. the, um, for the retrospective, I was kind of taken aback at how much I had missed watching that as a kid. Yeah, I was that's like, the one... I did not realize this was a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> like, up until that movie, um, John Wayne was like, I really want to do a movie with Clint Eastwood. I think everyone's going to love it. Then High Plains Drifter comes out, and he's like, fuck this, this hate monger with the violence. <laughs> oh, by the way, believe it or not, you just reminded me of something. Hopper was on a couple of uh, John Wayne flicks, and he says he became John Wayne's personal epitoma epitomization of the unwashed hippie commie menace. <laughs> so anytime something crazy would happen in the news, he would come saying, where's that son of a bitch commie Hopper? <laughs> Apparently Stokely Carmichael or somebody was... Uh, speaking at uh, a California college, I don't know which one, that Wayne's daughter went to. So Wayne got pissed off, flew his helicopter to the studio and with his gun 
<laughs> and is looking for Hopper to have Hopper explain this to him. Yeah, come oh. bastard. <laughs> also, keep in mind that fucking Bogdanovich actually sent the script alone some dub to Wayne, thinking he could do it. And Wayne was like, yeah, it's a good script there, Pilgrim, but this feels like a end of the Western Western. I'm not quite ready to hang up the spurs just yet. And he was right. He hadn't did True Grit yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But think about yeah, it. And has, was he... he... Was he Genghis Khan at this point? <laughs> oh, he had been oh, Genghis yeah. Khan. And, and he was already feeling the uh, <clears throat> after effects of being Genghis Khan. <laughs> he mm. didn't have too much left in this mortal coil. No. So at the same, so you got Godfather, which blew open the gates. I mean, just blew him open and gave him some power. So, and this is the big difference between old Hollywood and new Hollywood. Despite these failures, some of these people got other jobs, like, Clearly, if you did a THX 1138 today, you would not be working in Hollywood anymore. You'd be Josh Trank. Yes, exactly. That's the that, Josh Trank was where I was going to go with this because you had plenty of directors back then. It's like, we recognize you made a great film. Here's all the money. And they try to be themselves and fight with the studio and they make a crap movie that everybody hates and – it's Josh Trank. The funny part is Lucas didn't want to make fucking graffiti either. But everybody kept telling him, yeah, you do this esoteric stuff, but you know what? If you're going to succeed in this business, you have to do an uplifting, happy film. He was like, well, uh, uh, you want me to do that? I mean, that's easy. You just It's like killing a kitten. That's literally how he described it. <laughs> He's like, you know what? Fine. I'm going to go ahead and make you the ultimate happy, easygoing movie. And apparently he just wrote down on these three by five cards everything that happens in um, graffiti and then asked the Hayek's to like turn it into a script because as we all know very much now writing has never been George's strong suit <laughs> no 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 well he's he's good with like creative ideas he's an excellent but I think idea. more so dialogue is where it really yeah. falls apart I mean it clearly I mean I don't know what this man would have did if he hadn't stumbled across Lawrence Caston. <laughs> just think about I mean because then you end up with Raiders which is everybody doing exactly what they do best George producing keeping it under budget on schedule but not making the actual creative decisions at least back then <laughs> yeah even Spielberg apologized for uh, for Indy 4 he was like look I was doing it, and I thought it was a really bad idea, but my friend was like, no, this is great. Hell, you literally, see, you literally see him saying that kind of shit, like, coded in the behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah. He was like, I ended Indy 3 with them riding off into the sunset because I figured I was done. <laughs> and everyone kind of wished that he did. Yeah. But the cool thing was is that George seemed to know his weaknesses then. So he would pull the Hayek's to do uncredited polishes. They also did a polish on Star Wars. They don't get credit, but you can look it up. They have points in the movie. I don't think you get points in Star Wars just for being George Lucas's friend. Just ask mm-hmm. John Dystra, who did the work that made Star Wars Star Wars, and he didn't see a dime of profit participation. Um, so he goes and makes graffiti. And he makes it like a machine. And if you watch that film, as warm and fun as it is, 
if you know anything about film structure, you see exactly how manipulative George Lucas is. I mean, it's not obtrusive, but you can see it if you're looking for it. And it works like a charm. It it it's very it's probably the closest to a Spielbergian movie Lucas ever made as far as like engaging the audience in that way. And he finishes it and they made him make it for $750,000. That was his punishment for spending so much money on THX. And the crowd goes wild at the test screening. But apparently the head of, I think it was Universal, Ned Tannen, had a bad day. And he steps up and says, and these are documented by like more than one people, so I don't feel like it's hearsay. He goes, this film is unreleasable, blah, 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 blah. And apparently he forgot Coppola was there. Uh, <laughs> Coppola ew. walks up to him and says, Did you see the same film we just saw? You should be on your knees thanking this man. He is about to save your studio. You know what? And they claim he actually does. He said, They say he whipped out his checkbook and said, You know what? Here, I'll buy it for you from a million right now. <laughs> <laughs> and graffiti becomes a massive hit. And it allows George to go off and make his kids' movie that nobody in the movie brats thought stood a chance except for young Stevie. Hell, American Graffiti started a whole nostalgia craze for a while, which is how we got Happy Days. About to say, for the generations of today that may not know that, yes, clearly Gary Marshall just completely ripped off American Graffiti for Happy Days to the point of even casting Ron Howard. Yeah, he ripped it off because that nostalgia was popular for the moment. That's why you get these throwback films every generation. Actually, and every now and then a TV show. And I think it's, is it 20 years we pretty much narrowed it down to? Because always a 20 year show, that the 70s show came out in fucking, what, uh, the 90s? That 70s show started in the 90s? And yeah, you had that all 70s that 70s. Show was the 90s. You had all that '70s fashion come back in the mid to late '90s with the this bell bottoms and everything. Before and will all happen again. And one of and the past most ten mo- years, you had the, um, you know, '90s kids, '90s kids, all yeah. that nostalgia. Yeah, although they need to be a little more selective. At least people that are nostalgic for the '80s also admit when it sucked. Yeah, <laughs> and mm. we're, we're kind of moving out of that '90s nostalgia into the early 2000s nostalgia, which makes us feel very old. By the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> just got to get that out there. I'm not used to hearing the the word the year 2000 anything and nostalgia in the same sentence. <laughs> although yes, apparently, I don't, I don't although like, apparently there's this reviewer who does movies made in the 2000s all the time, but uh, nostalgia. <laughs> the popular nostalgia comes after I just was legally drinking. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. And and I hate to say it, it's one of the most potent tools that came out of what the studios learned from the 70s, which is nostalgia is monetizable. Yes, nostalgia, they can sell you your youth. And they know they can couch it with the fact that it's not always just the product that works on you. It's the feelings and memories and hazy things that you can't put your finger on that are associated with it that can sometimes color the the work that is embracing that nostalgia, which is you didn't have bills to pay 
<laughs> you didn't have to worry about getting the kids to school. <laughs> you didn't have to worry about all that shit. You just were enjoying entertainment for entertainment's sake. Yeah. Well, I teach high school now, so like every student I teach is born after 2000. Yeah, in case you didn't know, uh, um, Cecil, Alex is now the white version of Edward James almost and Stand and Deliver. Uh (laughs) i just wish i was his joe clark principal that would be perfect (laughs) it's weird watching what they're like oh man do you remember this when we were kids you know as they talk to each other and the stuff that they're into now that i'm like 20 years from now people are gonna you know this will either make make it or won't Never forget Fidget that we're spinners. dealing with a generation yeah. that, that, that... Fidget spinners are this generation's pogs. That's I, what it I actually, is. And I was going to take it even further back than that to fit into what we're talking about. It's this generation's pet rock. Yeah. It's yeah. that one weird moment where something really stupid takes over and everybody gets involved with it. And then literally two or three years later, everybody's going to look back and go, what the fuck is wrong with us? I was thinking Razor Scooter as well. Ah, Razor Scooter, or when yep. Rollerblades first came out, although those seem to have some longevity. Rollerblades, yeah, still still are going. Uh, I And every now and then I see somebody with a Razor Scooter, but it is it is very, very, it's not like it was, you know, 90s, where all of a sudden it was like everyone woke up one morning and they just, Razor Scooters were just there. I should make a fake commercial for this with uh, that uh, Lou Reed song, do, 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 <laughs> showing the pet rock and and fidget spinners and razors, <laughs> razor scooters, and then end it with, of course, <laughs> whatever the hell uh, bike that was that that commercial was originally selling. <laughs> well, well, they have them. You you see today like all these kids are like they they've been banning fidget spinners at school. It's so unfair. I'm like yeah, that, that's how we felt about pogs when they said we couldn't have them in school. The thing is, mm-hmm. don't don't get in love with something so much that it distracts you from the task at hand. Yeah, <laughs> I can only imagine. I can't imagine that any kid that complained about they won't let me wear my iPod in class could make a logical argument out of that. Yeah, because <laughs> hell, my generation got shit when we'd bring our Walkman to school. Though I like how the media bends things to where you, you see stories about child chokes on fidget spinner. Oh, you mean like child chokes on Lego lug? Yeah, I mean Lincoln lug. Mm-hmm. Child chokes on dirt. <laughs> child chokes on unchewed hot dog. I mean, how did George Carlin put it? The kid that eats the marbles and dies doesn't grow up to have a dumbass kid, too. (laughs) (laughs) It's called natural selection, folks. Sometimes we're saving the wrong people. Yeah, I said it. (laughs) But uh, speaking of people as, as treating people like meat, so there's this movie based on this book by Peter Benchley. Which, again, like The Godfather, if you go back and read the book, you're like, this is not that movie. Oh, Hell, yeah. Ho- Hooper has an affair with Brody's wife in the book. <laughs> so I should tell you how different that is. And, as usual, uh, a common theme here, 300% over budget. Ooh. Jaws was that much over budget? Jaws went from a 14-week shoot to a almost 200-day shoot. Well, I know um, Spielberg and as we all said... Know, Bruce didn't work. <laughs> well, well, I know, I know Spielberg Lucas broke said, the shark. 
Well, he uh, he's like, I will never. He's like, I'll listen. This is one thing where he's like, I'll listen to the studio and I'll actually shoot on you know a water set yeah. as opposed to actually shoot because that was what brought the most problems yeah was actually and, shooting and, in the water and they said because they were so pressed for time and such crazy stuff that the original rough cut they would cut from one shot of fucking shider with a blue sky to a shot of shaw with a gray sky yeah. <laughs> they said it was a nightmare and of course yeah all the bruce shit didn't work and, and actually the real story is jowski spielberg took i believe it's mulus Lucas, and there was one other of the movie brats to see them building the shark, and I think Mulus was the one that says, uh, "This is they're, 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 you're doing it too big. They're not going to take it seriously." And he was like, "No, the ethiologists." And I just was so happy I got to use that word outside of mentioning MST3K. Said <laughs> that no, this is the actual size, and they start playing with it, and apparently Lucas looks in, and Spielberg being Spielberg. He closes it on him. Mm. Then it breaks. And Lucas is trapped in it. (laughs) (laughs) They pull Lucas out. And apparently they jumped in the car. And in the book that I got this antidote from, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, they said all they knew is they had broke something that cost a lot of money. (laughs) And they didn't realize that this was going to be a foreshadowing for the entire film <laughs> and of course uh spielberg proved his genius although verna fields did her best to try to take some of this glory by finally realizing hey the shark ain't working we gotta work around it and of course jaws would not be jaws if the shark worked yeah and that'd be yeah. a weird movie wouldn't it if you see it would the probably be forgotten <laughs> But yeah, by yet by, by that's, letting that's your brain fill in the blanks is what makes that movie so fucking scary. Oh, and also and then when you finally see it at the end, it's yeah. just when it fi- when it comes out of the water and, and they do that that uh, quick pan to uh, or the quick zoom to uh, to Shider, yeah. you're just like what? Yeah, yeah. Although I do love the way the Shider basically is the only reason you accept that as a real shark with the way he plays that scene, and of course the infamous line. We're going to need a bigger boat. (laughs) (laughs) So this happens. Nobody has faith in it. The studio, literally Spielberg, tried to quit. But I guess uh, Sid Scheinberg, his his version of the Godfather in the business, said, look, if you want to quit, you can leave right now. No questions asked. No hard feelings. But I think you might be able to pull off a miracle here, and this will be the start of a great career. So do you want to quit? Or do you want to keep going? And apparently Spielberg said, I think I want to keep going. And you see what we got to today. By the way, the uh, one thing that they don't mention a lot about Jaws' success is it was one of the first films that used TV advertising. Up until then, oh. they just focused on print, and that's why people like Kale had so much power. The because thing- people literally based their movie-going decisions on the reviews. The other thing with Jaws, though, is... Up until that, like summer was the dump month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he there changed, wasn't a yeah, yeah that changed. Yeah, there the wasn't game. a summer blockbuster. Yeah, most yeah. films were, uh, and we're slowly drifting back into that now. I've noticed where Christmas was your big push. I, I've noticed that. Uh, well, I've noticed. I didn't, get a, I didn't notice we didn't get a lot of flack about the new Star Wars coming on December instead of the summer. 
I thought that was a rather bold statement. Um, and I've noticed a lot of studios taking more risks with the with like February and March. Yeah, like which, which, as you know, is usually known as "fuck you." It's January. Yeah, <laughs> but Deadpool was a success in February. The first Iron Man was a success in March. I, I think Underworld. As, I think what used to be the case was. It was based on TV versus film. And, you know, TV used to have the template of rerun fresh content till the summer. Then we take a break. And then we come back with fresh content in the fall. So once those two started to coalesce and the younger people became the biggest part of the movie going audience, summer naturally became the best time to extract all their money. Thank you.